That's clearly what I like to do. I was like, that was a fast bus, and Jessica is directly under it. Hello, welcome to Tencent Takes, the podcast where we stab our neighbors with pencils one issue at a time. My name is Mike Thompson, and as always, I am joined by my co-host, the nocturnal ne'er-do-well, Jessica Frazier. <laughs> I am doing most things in the evening. My only job is at night. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. How are you doing? I'm great. I'm doing wonderful. How are you? Oh, I can't complain. It's a Friday, and I'm done with work, so I'm happy. If you are new to the show, the purpose of this podcast is to celebrate comic books in ways that are both fun and informative. We like to look at their coolest, weirdest, and silliest moments, as well as examine how they are woven into the larger fabric of pop culture and history. And if you're enjoying the show so far and you want to help us grow, it's always a huge help if you will rate and or review us on Apple Podcasts, because that helps with discoverability. Tonight, we are going to be talking about the 1980s horror classic Fright Night, along with its tie-in comics. And to do that, we brought in a special guest expert on both horror and the 1980s, comics writer David M. Boer. So, David, thank you for being here. And would you take a minute to introduce yourself to our listeners? Well, hello, and thank you for having me. I'm super excited to be here. We did chat before we started recording, and I already adore both of you beyond any any Man. measure in the universe. <laughs> Thanks. So I'm super excited to be here. Talk about one of my absolute favorite stories, I'll say, both movie, <laughs> comic, et cetera, and Fright Night. I would say expert is a very kind word for me. <laughs> I grew up in the yeah. 80s and I love it. So it's been fun to revisit a lot of these different things. So I grew up in the 80s in Ohio. I loved horror movies. I was a Stephen King kid long before mm -hmm. it was appropriate for me to be reading Stephen King. <laughs> the, Relatable. I am feeling that yeah. on a deep emotional level. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so my quick, very quick Stephen King story is the scariest piece of media in any format that I've ever consumed was I was probably 12 years old. And I listened to the audiobook of the Stephen King short story, The Boogeyman, which has recently been made into oh, yeah. a feature movie. The story itself is absolutely horrifying. But then to hear actual voice actors act out in this slurred voice of the Ooh. boogeyman coming out of the closet. I was but a mere child. And I laid <laughs> in my bed at night in the dark with my closet door that wouldn't shut all the way. And it just like was no. open just a tiny bit. And I'm listening. There's a moment in the story where he talks about the boogeyman like sliding and flithering through the sewers. And you could hear it in the pipes and things. And I'm in my dark house in the middle of the night listening to the nope. pipes settle. And I'm just, nope. no, no. So <laughs> the hardest that passes. <laughs> You can see I haven't really held on to that for the last 35 years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I was a horror kid. I loved Fright Night. I would go to the video store and I would just go down the, the row and rent the VHS tapes of just the horror sections. Evil Dead, Evil Dead 2 was one of my absolute favorites. Mm -hmm. Chopping Mall. Oh, we watched that for Halloween last year. That was great. <laughs> oh my God, the girl who screams and he shoots a man and it explodes. <laughs> right? Isn't it, yep. Didn't he shoot it as like a blade or something? 
Uh, yeah, I remember up. there was like lasers too, and I don't know. Was... Oh, she got her laser head blown up. And, so. and there's also like the kids are like watching movies in the furniture store, and then they're having sex, and we're like, this is weird, but it's also a Corman movie, so we're on board. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, so I grew up there. Then I eventually relocated to California, where my first life started as an attorney, where I practiced law for about 17 years. Wow. And then in 2021, so sort of mid-pandemic, if you will, I took the leap to writing full-time because mm. I'd been writing about at least a decade sort of doing both jobs. Mm. And so I took the leap to write full-time. And so now I write comics, television, movies. And I think we're up on deck a little late in the show. We might be talking about one of the comics that I have written, which has very much the 80s horrors. Yeah, we King are. Vibes. Yeah. What kind of law did you practice? I'm curious. So I started out practicing employment law, and mm -hmm. then I went and worked for the uh, federal court system and then the uh, state court system. So mm -hmm. basically, I worked writing and researching legal opinions for judges. Okay. And I can tell you that writing comics is definitely a different skill set. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> I have learned to be very pithy in comics <laughs> because of my legal background. Good. Can confirm. Pro pithy. We have talked about your comics a couple of times before on the show. Um, Jessica has talked about Rain. I have talked about Specs, which we will be talking about later on tonight. But yeah, we're super excited to have you here. And before we start talking about Fright Night, what is one cool thing that you have read or watched lately? I am watching the new season of Black Mirror. Mm. And I love Black Mirror. I came to the seasons far, you know, I think there was three seasons out or something like that. When I started watching them and they feel like such fantastically done many sci-fi mm -hmm. movies. And I just love that. That's the feel of the episode. And then the last, the most recent episode that I watched, I think it was the first, maybe the second episode of this season. It's called Joan is awful. Oh and yeah. A commentary on AI computer likenesses for actors, data mining and streaming. Yeah. I don't know why this would uh, resonate right now. Like, you know, we're not in the middle of a giant strike between both the writers and Screen Actors Guild. Right. And the fact that they were able to weave in every single thing about technology that is currently concerning into a single episode and make it coherent and, and entertaining and fantastic, mm -hmm. it just, it sort of boggled my mind. So I've been talking about that particular episode a lot. <laughs> Good. All right, Jessica, how about you? Well, I've been reading... The Contradictions by Sophie Yano, and that's a small writer that I ran into at the Petaluma, the Lumicon. Okay. So yeah, either at Lumicon or at the East Bay Comic Con, one of the two. She was, I've, I've, been, to, I've been to so many things recently, but yeah, so I met, I actually don't know their pronouns, so I'm just going to use they, them, but I met them at their stall. And they signed my copy. And it's a really cool kind of social narrative and mm. autobiography. And so it follows the author kind of trying to find themselves while they're growing up and like deciding to go to Paris to do a study abroad and meeting all of these different people that kind of change their mindset about different things. And I 
you know, I, I'm only about halfway through, but it kind of looks like they're trying to land on what they really believe based on what all of these other people are trying to believe. Like she's run into a Marxist and then, you know, another person's like, oh, I'm, I'm an anarchist. Like Marxists like drive me nuts. And like, you know, it's a guy who's a communist. And so they're getting all of these different viewpoints. I think they're really settling on where they kind of land nice in their own morals so it's a really cool introspective they wrote another one called the war of streets and houses and it's mm. all about the housing crisis and it's oh, wow, really okay. interesting so yeah really thoughtful stuff and the art is really well done they do their own art i was gonna say weird that you would resonate with a story about a kid who goes to paris yeah, or about somebody who's like yelling about a housing crisis as I built yeah, my too. own tiny house since I was like, can't buy a house in this climate. <laughs> Jessica, did you say it's a uh, graphic novel? It is. Or is it just yeah. a novel? Oh, it's a graphic novel. It's a graphic okay. novel. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and they do their own cool. art too. It's really well done. They did a little They did a little self-portrait in the front for me when they signed it. So it was really nice. nice. Yeah. So what about you, Mike? I just finished reading Ashes by Alvaro Ortiz. I read it for a book club that I'm in. It was published this year in 2023 by IDW. It is Ortiz's English language debut. He is a Spanish graphic novelist. And it's a road trip story starring these three estranged friends who are brought back together when the fourth member of their crew dies and asks them to scatter his ashes at a mysterious spot on a map that's marked only with an X. They don't know anything else that's going on. It is this genuinely lovely story that's alternately sweet and silly and strange but there's also this like underlying sadness to it that makes for a really nice emotional balance ortiz's artwork is like really beautiful too he's got this cool style that's like deceptively simple but it still has like a lot of depth and color to it and there's a couple of moments that really resonate with me like at one point they're talking about phantom limbs and there's a character who's talking about you know how he lost a hand and then when it shows him remembering his phantom limb syndrome, his hand is drawn in the same way that these three friends are remembering the fourth friend who has died. Like every now and then you'll see you'll see the fourth friend show up as kind of this strange outline of a phantom. And it's, you know, it's kind of this nice allegory for, you know, the loss of a person in your life as being akin to losing a limb. And yeah, it just it feels like this very kind of like young adult, but very deep and thoughtful and sweet Coen Brothers movie as a comic book. I loved it. It was my first thought as you're describing it was, it sounds so cool. I would love to write this movie. It sounds amazing. <laughs> it's great. I highly recommend it. So yeah. So is everyone ready to talk about Fright Night? Yeah. The sweet and strange coming of age story that that is. <laughs> <laughs> How's that for a about segue? A, How's that for your segue? About a good natured high school boy. <laughs> Just neighbors coming together for a common cause. <laughs> uh, all right. So Fright Night is a classic 1980s horror movie. It was directed by Tom Holland and it was written by Holland as well. He has talked about how he came up for the idea for Fright Night while he was working on the script for another movie, which was Cloak and Dagger. Holland came up with the idea of a horror movie fan becoming convinced that his neighbor is a vampire. And then he has said that he didn't think there was enough of a story there for an entire movie, but he let it sit in the back of his head until a year later when he figured out that the main character would hit up the late night horror movie host at his local TV station, because those were really common back in the eighties on local TV. So once Holland had figured this out, he wrote the script over three weeks 
with the intention to direct since he'd managed to build up a, like enough clout due to his scripts for Psycho 2, Class of 1984, and Cloak and Dagger. And the movie wound up being a hit. It grossed almost $25 million on a budget, somewhere between 7 and $9 million. And Holland went on to direct Child's Play afterwards, so he has cemented himself as a pretty big name in the horror movie genre. The movie stars Chris Randon as Jerry Dandridge, William Ragsdale as Charlie Brewster, Roddy McDowell as Peter Vincent, Amanda Bierce as Amy, Jonathan Stark as Billy, and Stephen Jeffries as Evil Ed. So it's an interesting movie because it's got a very eventful plot with a lot of different plot points, but it's also not the deepest of movies. Yes. <laughs> so <laughs> buckle up, everybody. It's so funny, Mike, that you mentioned about the late night horror host from the local TV mm-hmm. station, because I did just watch this just two days ago in preparation mm-hmm. for this podcast. To that exact same thought, which there's lots of ways that movies become dated. And I just mm-hmm. was so fascinated that I think we'll talk about it, but Charlie basically shows up at the TV stations like, please, Peter Vincent, can you help me? And I'm just yeah. like, did he just drive to L.A.? To go to this town speech. Oh, well. <laughs> so, so here's the thing. Because they're is not this in movie... LA, are they? They're not. No, the, the, like I, the Midwest. it's Iowa. So the locations are all in LA. In fact, the location for the TV studio that Peter Vincent films at is now the Scientology Media like Services there it is. headquarters. But, of course it is. But back then it was just like a real movie lot. They, But the thing is, is if you look at the address for Peter Vincent when he's getting evicted from his apartment, it's an address in Iowa. <laughs> so oh. I was like, I don't well, think I'd... Iowa looks like this, but okay. I had that. I just had that thought when he showed up at the studio a lot. I'm just thinking there's a studio lot in this small yeah. town where he can go talk to this horror host. But yeah. then of course I, I am the guy who's like, Oh, well, let's just keep going. That's yeah. Cool. I mean, that, that's basically how you have to approach this movie is you're like, Okay, whatever. Fine. Just move along. Okay, exactly. that happened. All right. Yeah. Let's see exactly. what happens. <laughs> yeah. So the movie is about Iowa high school student Charlie Brewster. He is living his extremely mediocre white guy life to its fullest. He has a girlfriend named Amy who loves him, even though he keeps pressuring her for sex when she clearly isn't ready for it. Like, that's pretty much the first thing that she ever says to him is like, I'm not ready. Yeah. He's got a, a, a friend, a friend of me named Evil Ed, who doesn't seem to totally hate him and his mom who is incredibly just not involved with his actual life lets him stay up super late to watch his favorite show fright night which is hosted by washed up vampire movie actor peter vincent and one night he sees his new neighbor jerry is a vampire it's like like within the first 10 minutes of the movie we know he's a vampire it's not even like a twist it's like we're just getting that out of the way (laughs) yep yep i I have to I have to jump in because my frame of reference at this point is like all the spoof movies mm-hmm. on TV shows of like Rear Window. Yeah, and I keep going back to the Simpsons episode where Bart breaks his leg and he has to stay inside for the summer, and he watches Flanders, you know, next door, mm-hmm. and he thinks that Flanders has killed Maude, his yeah. wife, and he brings out like a bag that looks like a body, but you can't, you can't. Maybe you know it's open interpretation in this movie. The scene you're describing right now, he looks outside and they are carrying in an actual coffin. There is no mistake. Yeah, there's no, like, there's no way. Oh, Charlie, you've misinterpreted this pine box as a coffin. No, it's polished up. It's got brass on it. It's beautiful. Yep. It's ornate. 
it's ornate and they put it into the cellar and we're as the audience going okay so a vampire does live next door or yeah. <laughs> they're burying people in the basement one of the two <laughs> one of the two but then you know he sees jerry hooking up with a woman through his window and like the fangs come out and jerry notices charlie and he like pulls down the drawstring and his fingers have the long claws it's like okay yeah, there's <laughs> there's no subtlety here. So immediately after this, he reports that Jerry is responsible for the disappearance of several people in the area. A police detective takes him over to Jerry's house, whereupon this dude named Billy introduces himself as Jerry's roommate. We will talk about this later on. Which Just that would put a never pin in happen. It. You're never no. taking a child to go like talk to a, a minor. potential suspect. And and no. then the detective immediately is like, well, this boy says your roommate is a murderer. And it's like <laughs> pointing right at him. I had my lawyer brain kicked in on that moment. Again, when you visit these things, it's such different yeah. contexts. And my lawyer brain kicked in and I went, this detective has taken the the, the witness to mm-hmm. confront the suspect. Yep. Great. Good. Go. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. It's... A plus police work. Yeah, well, you know. <laughs> uh, and then, like, you know, nothing comes of it. And the detective actually understandably gets pissed when Charlie reveals that he thinks Jerry is actually a vampire. Charlie's mom invites Jerry over that night. And then there's this, like legit great confrontation when Jerry comes back over later on that night and he like throws Charlie like through the closet and then he makes Charlie an offer and he says you can ignore me being a vampire or you can die and then Charlie because he has the confidence of a mediocre white guy tries to fight him and it doesn't go well but he manages to escape his fate when he stabs Jerry through the hand with a pencil you definitely glossed over the most important thing that we'll talk about later which is Charlie crawling out of the closet that, oh yes. yeah yes yeah the balsa wood closet doors <laughs> <laughs> and then stabbing the vampire with a pencil i thought that was great <laughs> i do think it's clever but symbolic yes. i loved that one moment though where because this is the first time that we see jerry as like a monstrous vampire and it's like full 1980s monster makeup prosthetics everywhere it was chef's kiss it was so good <laughs> it was fantastic and then Charlie's mom goes, Charlie, I'm stuck in the bedroom. Oh, yeah. And suddenly, Jerry is terrified. He's like this monstrous <laughs> creature of the night. And he's scared of Charlie's mom. So he's like, <laughs> okay, again, all right, that happened. Let's go. Let's move on. Admittedly, I would get pretty nervous if there was the possibility of me getting found out in a high schooler's bedroom by his mom. Like, I don't care. Which the, the great plot twist would have been if the detective showed back up and arrested Jerry for like pedophilia or something. <laughs> That's just it. Child stalking. Because it's yeah. not as creepy if it's female yeah. child, yeah. female teenager. No, that's yeah. like, what is it, the freshman? What? Oh, Days that's and Confused? That's just cute 80s rom-com movie. Uh, yeah. If it's a female vampire. Oh, man. Yeah, so. The 80s. The, oh, 80s. the 80s. Oh, the 80s. Yeah, Charlie then turns to Peter Vincent, who originally dismisses him, which we have discussed. Charlie actually goes to the TV studio that Peter Vincent works at and tries to get him to help. Peter Vincent is like assuming that he's just kind of a crazed fan and gets him the fuck out of there. Amy and Ed then come to check in on Charlie and understandably get freaked out when they basically see him having a nervous breakdown and going simultaneously all vampire doomsday prepper there's like a lot of votive candles in that room and garlic and like sharpening steaks yeah like sarah and i were watching it and i was just like 
it's got to be so hot in that room from all the candles. Like, I don't, I don't want to think about how it smells. And he's sharpening a fence stake, right? Like a fence slat or something. Yeah. Like there is 1000 things sitting around your house right now. Yep. That would be easier than sharpening a fence post. Whatever yep. you're doing, Charlie, come on. Put your vampire hunting hat on straight. Come on. <laughs> I don't, like For someone who watches a lot of vampire horror movies, he doesn't seem to really get it. But yeah, it turns out Peter Vincent is actually so broke that he's about to get evicted from his apartment. And Amy is able to hire him to basically do a series of fake vampire tests on Jerry to ease Charlie's mind. However... When this happens, Peter realizes Jerry is actually a vampire when he's leaving and he drops his pocket mirror and sees that Jerry doesn't cast a reflection. And then evil Ed is turned into a vampire by Jerry. After Jerry turns him into the vampire, Ed attacks Peter Vincent, who burns him with a crucifix and drives him away. And then at the same time that this is all going on, Jerry chases Charlie and Amy into a nightclub, which also terrible bouncers like (laughs) they're just not good at their job. Yeah, and then Jerry manages to hypnotize and abduct Amy. We learn that Amy is the spitting image of his lost love, and he bites her with the intention of turning her to, which is very uncomfortable these days because she is a high schooler, and Amanda Beers in this movie looks extremely young. Like, Jessica has spent... Yeah, until the end, and Jessica, <laughs> you're, you're Your dry face. heaving. We can, we can actually see each other on camera, and your dry heaving is really everything right now. <laughs> Yeah. Oh my god, it's that's how so... I felt the whole time. I was like, this is so gross because here's the thing. Chris Sarandon like doesn't look like a fucking spring chicken, okay? Like no. the guy is very clearly like in his late 30s and like yeah. he's what like why would anybody that age be into a high schooler? I can't. Like I live right near so a high school gross. and I can't get it. It's just, it's so beyond me. But I will say, he's Chris probably Rannon... in his 300s, honestly, Jessica. <laughs> way worse. It's way worse than you think. Oh my God, as the Twilight music starts playing oh, in the God. background. We can all agree, though, that Chris Rannon was kind of a dreamboat in this movie, right? Like he was a good looking dude. Well, yeah. Like, oh yeah, no, like, absolutely. That's not the problem I, I, I have. With I don't it. know. <laughs> as a blossoming teenager, I don't know if. It, I did. I don't know. Maybe he was. Maybe he wasn't for me personally. <laughs> I thought as doofy as Charlie was, He's I was totally more of a Charlie on the Charlie train. Oh, mm, I know. No. I know. Mm. <laughs> he needed protection. <laughs> he needed somebody <laughs> to tell him what not to do in a horror movie. <laughs> he needed guidance, Fair. and you were going to be that guidance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as a freaking as a twelve year old. Charlie, don't go in that room. Good. Yeah, so after this, Charlie manages to recruit Peter Vincent for a final confrontation with Jerry, which initially goes poorly. Charlie is locked in a room with Amy, who is transforming into a vampire, while Peter retreats to Charlie's house and ends up staking Evil Ed, which gives us a very cool but very drawn-out death scene. We're going to come back to this again. How dare you? How dare you? (laughs) I think this moment isn't... well. We'll talk about it. We'll talk about it. (laughs) I have thoughts. (laughs) I can't wait to hear it. (laughs) And then after that, Peter frees Charlie. The two kill Billy, who then comes back as like an undead ghoul or something. I don't it's not explained. He may have already been undead, too, but they they shoot him. He gets back up and then they shoot him again. And then he literally melts. Chef's kiss. Yeah, it's really great. Like, it's a great scene. And then after that, they confront Jerry in the basement, 
Amy almost eats Charlie, but the two vampire hunters manage to smash the blacked out windows and kill Jerry with sunlight, which restores Amy's humanity. And then a few nights later, Charlie and Amy are watching Fright Night in bed and Charlie sees glowing eyes looking at him from Jerry's house. But it's such a brief thing that he shakes it off as he's just seeing things. And then we hear evil Ed cackling as he delivers his iconic line. You're so cool, Brewster. The end. Like It is as much of a roller coaster as Mike has just described listeners. Yep. I promise yeah. you. I had a lot more written and I, I had to like distill it down since we're going to be talking <laughs> about this for a while. So I guess the first question is, had you guys seen Fright Night before? One million times. One million times for you? <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Jessica? Well, I vaguely remember the plot, but I most definitely remember the cover of the film from perusing the horror section over at right. the local Bradley video. My parents weren't super thrilled that I liked this genre, and I was I was very much a horror head, too. And they did not love that. And so, like, I was kind of steered away from a lot of this stuff. But I would always go over there and be, like, picking at it nonetheless. And I'm like, come on. <laughs> no, it's a work of art. That poster, that VHS cover, like, it's one of those ones where it all always stood out to me and I always thought it was so cool totally same that's when I would go to the video rental video store even before Blockbuster we had like these neighborhood ones and I'd yeah. go like I said I'd go along the shelves and the ones that I would pick out would be based entirely on the cover art because you didn't have any kids we didn't have the internet yeah so I couldn't yeah. like figure out what they you know what these movies were so I picked like Evil Dead and Dead Alive yeah. and you know Chopping Mall like we talked mm. about and this one was one that really stood out to me. And I was reminded, too, there's an 80s sequel. We're going to talk about it. <laughs> We're going to talk about it. Yeah, but I've seen it over the years, bunches of times when it was on cable when I rented it. I don't think I watched a lot of movies and we got to stay at home during the pandemic. I don't think I revisited this one, but recently I did. And to quote the illustrious Celine Dion, it's all coming back to me now. <laughs> it is a horror podcast i had to bring Celine in nothing more it. horror yeah like i saw it when i was a teenager which was in the 90s it was long enough ago that i only had very vague memories and i think it was just on tv one night and i like left it on i was like yeah all right whatever but yeah it was it was a lot of fun to sit there and rewatch it and just kind of revisit that nostalgia so how do you feel it holds up almost 30 years later utter silence <laughs> I mean, the effects, look, they're all practical effects and they're 80s effects. And so I can put myself in the shoes of younger viewers now. And I think they would think it would look absolutely ridiculous. Right. For me, it's horrifying. There was a couple of scenes in there. One was Evil Ed's death, mm -hmm. which is, just talk about an emotional roller coaster. I don't know if we're going to talk about that mm -hmm. a little bit later. And then Amy's face when she's fully turns. That's like the oh. stuff of nightmares for me. Yeah, where that she's melt. got like the, it's yeah. like, it's like basically someone crossed the Joker's smile with shark's teeth. It's great. Yeah. And it's terrifying. It's like, you feel like it's, you know, makeup, but you really feel that there is some danger there. And mm -hmm. I love that. I still love it. Yeah. Yeah, so Sarah will always watch a movie with me if it's like an 80s movie with a lot of practical effects. And she was just all over this movie she loved it good i when he what what's his face i can't remember his name now melts on the stairs oh billy yeah 
I was like, well, I just said, well, I'm 15 minutes, add 15 minutes to the movie of just him melting from start to finish. And I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> well, and they also do the cool thing where when we see Ed transforming from a wolf back to a human form, and it's like, you know, it's clearly like a wax model where they've melted it and then they're playing it in reverse. I thought that was so cool. It just, it looked yeah. so good. But yeah. Like, what about you, Jessica? I'm curious. It felt a lot sillier than I thought it was going to be. I think that was just of its time, though. Yeah. I mean, obviously, it had a ton of plot holes and unanswered questions. And, like, I get it. It was of the era. But just, like, fuck women, right? Like, fuck them. <laughs> we don't need them to play any I mean, sort of, like, <laughs> uh, yeah. any sort of real role. Like, just have them there to be cute and, like, a sex idol and, like, look like the previous girlfriend of the of the other guy in your yeah. own vampire yeah exactly <laughs> yeah that I, was one I mean of my i didn't notes. get you know just just right from the first scene i never got any of those vibes when amy's like no i said no charlie and then in half a second okay <laughs> and she takes her top right. off and everything yeah yeah and then <laughs> and then charlie is a teenage guy and he's like oh i'm gonna watch the neighbor Carrie and Hoffman instead yep. of my girlfriend. It's very convenient for the plot. Yeah. Yes. There's a lot of moments like that. Although I did like how immediately after that, Amy storms downstairs and Charlie's chasing after her. And she's like, you didn't want to have sex with me. And, you know, so why am I going to be here? And then the mom is there and she's like, yeah. oh, hey, you two, are you having a fight? And I'm like, the whole neighborhood could hear they were having a fight. Like, oh <laughs> I did. I had that thought. I'm like, your mom definitely just heard her say that. Yeah, but I was then they like, kind of walk around the corner, so maybe they're in the other room, but it's not clear. And so I'm like, oh, okay, so this yeah. mom. I mean, what does that say? It says so much about this mom. She's yeah. also super involved, not yeah. completely removed from her ch child's life at all. So no, great. and Gosh. we only see her in a bathrobe, like or a night, yeah. you know, a night robe, whatever they are. It's giving like I'm a cool mom. <laughs> like I remember she was Jennifer Coolidge and drunk off her ass. Oh, that would be amazing. I would and like falls over. And I would have like, excused oh, so now. much for that. Yeah. Now we get it because because then Jerry could have walked into her bedroom, looked in, seen the empty like martini glasses, and she's mm -hmm. like sprawled, sprawled out, passed out. And he thinks about like jamming the door shut, and then he just quietly closes it because he knows she's not going to get up. Yeah, that would be like great. commentary. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I'm in line with both of you. I love the '80s horror special effects. I think they're the best part. The script is pretty thin. Like, I had a note saying that Amy wasn't really a character, and yep. noting all the yep. plot holes. Like, how come Ed didn't die after he clearly did die? But you know, right. and then also the nonsense with the police detective, but whatever. Yeah. But overall, I really enjoyed it. You know, it's one of those things where, yes, it's it's not perfect, but I will acknowledge that I did have a lot of fun with this. So, yeah, something that we love to talk about whenever we discuss anything horror related are the queer themes and connections therein. And this movie has some serious queer connections, like three of the main actors are family. Roddy McDowell never officially came out, which was unsurprising given the era. But Amanda Beers has been out as a lesbian since the early 90s. Stephen Jeffries became a gay porn actor in the 90s, too, which is wild to me. It's rough. 90s were rough, man. Yeah. He's a Bay Area resident, too, apparently. I found an article talking about that. And they're just like, oh, yeah, he's an openly gay Bay Area resident now. And I'm like, son of a bitch. <laughs> like, nice. I thought you were going to say bear. And I'm like, what? <laughs> no. <laughs> 
He did beef up a little bit, though. Like, we found pictures of him, and it was like, like Sarah and I were looking into this, and we were just like, oh, wow, he uh, he actually looks a lot better now than he did as, like, the very twinky little boy that he was in this movie. Do you think that there was any porn producer that ever approached him and was like, can you wear the raggedy Anne hair, please? <laughs> God, I hope not. <laughs> the red, you know, the red yarn when he's... Yeah, like, yeah, uh, that he wears when he's, when he's faking out the, Peter. Yeah. I don't know. Oh, man. So, yeah, one thing that I thought was really interesting was the relationship between Jerry and his, in quotes, roommate, Billy. Like, do you think they were actually a couple? Uh, One million percent, yes. I thought so. I don't know if they're a couple. I don't know if if Jerry is really a commitment vampire. Yeah. No, like, Sarah and I had the same discussion. Like, we were like, "Mm, Billy wants to be a couple with him, but Jerry is probably just like, whatever, I'm a million years old, and I am beyond your petty notions of sexuality. Jerry's stringing him along. A hundred percent. Because he's the guy who can walk around in the daylight. He's like Renfield, right? Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, when the detective comes over and Billy says, oh, my roommate, he's out on business and we're renovating the place. And I'm like, so. Yeah. Just in parentheticals, we're homosexually renovating this place. <laughs> we're living together. We're just doing all these things. <laughs> so, yeah, that was my first vibe. To, like. You 100% are sleeping together when he's not out hunting for prey. And can yep. we talk about, this is, this is my moment. This is my moment. If we end the podcast after this, I will, <laughs> I will leave happy. Okay. <laughs> so Charlie stabs Jerry with mm-hmm. a pencil through mm-hmm. his hands. And then the next scene, Charlie gets a phone call and he answers the phone. And it is Jerry. And Jerry is talking to him and can see him through the window across the lawn. You know where I'm going with this. I had notes about this. (laughs) And there is a camera angle that is a down on the floor sort of up camera angle. And who is on his knees in front of Jerry, Mm -hmm. but Billy. And eventually, more than a second later, you see that Billy is tending to Jerry's stabbed hand. Yes. Which happens to be down at his side. Jerry, you're bleeding. Put your hand up in the air. Elevate your hand, man. Don't just let the <laughs> right. blood drip down. But somehow, Billy had to be on his knees directly in front of Jerry to tend to this hand. And then the next shot is the POV of Charlie looking through his window into the other yep. window. And 100% Jerry is in profile and Billy is in profile on his knees in front of Jerry as Charlie's watching. And I'm like, this is it. This is when Charlie has his awakening. And he's this is when he finds out that he's going to let Jerry have Amy because he has no need for Amy anymore. (laughs) Podcasts over. Podcast over. (laughs) Well, folks, it's been fun. No. (laughs) So the funny thing is that Jonathan Stark, the actor who played Billy, he has talked about that scene. And he was talking about how when they were originally filming that, Tom Holland was like, you need to get on your knees. And he was like, oh, OK, I see what you're doing here. Chris Randall, on the other hand, was like, no, no, they're just, they're just roommates. And <laughs> so it was purposeful, right? It was. Oh, purposeful. yeah, it totally was. It totally was. OK, OK, but like, because I thought this can't be accidental. No. And the other thing is that. Ed's death, it's not even like subtly homoerotic. It's straight up homoerotic because Ed is naked when he dies and we get a lot of shots of him. And it's, it's kind of like 
you know, the tasteful nude where it's like you just have everything covered up. And then there is a long lingering shot of him naked on the floor with Roddy McDowell standing over him after he dies. Mm-hmm. And it's <laughs> yeah. Two things on that one. I think that that scene is absolutely it just rips your heart out. There is no reason why that it needed to be that long, except to make it so emotionally impactful. Oh, yeah. I really, mm-hmm. I feel it in my core. And then the other thing is, Roddy McDowell, kudos to you, my friend, because you have found a way to go through this entire movie with just this look of complete, horrified astonishment. You're seeing all these things for real, mm-hmm. you know, and as a character, you've got the same expression. Every time something happens, he's just like, I just, I just see that. And then he like backs away and it's, I love it. I love it. It's great. Well, and honestly, I would argue that Peter Vincent is the hero of this movie because my next point is Charlie Brewster, terrible lead character or worst lead character. I mean, when you're dealing with all those (laughs) repressed feelings, you know, confused about your own identity and just really having all these mixed emotions about your sexy next door neighbor to like focus on vampire hunting people come on uh he's pretty bad but you know yeah to your point peter vincent he was the only one who had a real character arc yeah he had the i can't do it because i'm fake and then now i'm gonna be real and and he does it Mm -hmm. and even then he has a false start where he basically runs away to charlie's house to try to call for help and then and then he's just like all right i'm all that's here i'm the only one so i gotta he has his own awakening with evil Ed. I'm Peter Vincent. I kill vampires. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I, uh, I thought he was the worst. I thought Charlie was just a very unlikable and useless character in this version. But yeah. He started out as a pushy asshole trying to coerce his girlfriend into sleeping with him. And then he ended the movie <laughs> as a pushy asshole trying to coerce his now trauma bonded girlfriend into sleeping with him. <laughs> but now she's more down because again, they're trauma bonded. Yeah, right. Yikes. That's, that's like the best the best summary of any movie I've ever heard, Jessica. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for that. I have my moments. They're brief. <laughs> you have many moments. <laughs> yeah. So we also got a remake of Fright Night in 2011 starring Anton Yelchin, R.I.P., Colin Farrell, Tony Collette, Imogen Poots, and Christopher Mintz-Platz, along with David Tennant. And this time the story was set in an isolated desert suburb outside of Las Vegas. Charlie isn't really trying to convince anyone that his neighbor's a vampire. Instead, it's evil Ed. And Peter Vincent is a Chris Angel style magician. Even though the setting is different, the movie follows the same overall story beats as the original. It was pretty well received with critics. It proved a mild box office success. I watched it ahead of this with Sarah. Jessica, you watched it too, right? Yeah, I did. Yeah. Okay. And then, David, you haven't seen it yet, right? I have not sullied my pristine memory of Fright Night with this 2011 Colin Farrell nonsense. How dare well, you? Oh, okay. Hold on. Hold your, hold your horses. I'm totally hold joking. No. I just haven't. <laughs> no, I know you are. No, I know you are. I know you are. I just have a very inflection-rich voice. <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, this was also at the time when they were suddenly remaking, like, a lot of 80s movies. Like, I think this was around the same time that we got the Point Break remake, which just looked absolutely insipid. Like, I never even yeah. bothered with that one. No. I never saw it either until this week where we rented it. Same. Same. Yeah, it's weird. Oh. Fright Night has all these extreme stunts now, but they look weirdly CGI. I don't know. 
<laughs> that motorcycle. I did watch the trailer and he threw a motorcycle through a car and I was like, that's a cool idea. Oh, it's it's cool. Yeah. But then it was all, um, it was very 2011 to me. So the trailer is very 2011. It's interesting because, I mean, Sarah and I genuinely loved this movie. Like we were surprised by how much we liked it. And as much as I enjoyed the original, I kind of described it as all frosting, no cake, where it's kind of, you know, surface level, but it's enjoyable. And this felt like an entire meal because the script is so good. And they also do a lot of really cool camera tricks and moments. The only issue for me was that Evil Ed comes out of nowhere within like the first five, 10 minutes. And he literally is telling Charlie and he's like, yeah, so your neighbor is a vampire. And there's like, there's no lead up to that. It's just no, yeah. like that. Yeah. Maybe there's a deleted scene or, or something that fleshed out that specific story beat. But like, there is this great moment where Charlie rescues his babysitter from Jerry. And both Sarah and I legit gasped at that moment. It was such a great, surprising twist. Yeah. And then also there's this overall theme of like societal authority figures like the police and bouncers at the nightclub who are totally useless because they're just like misogynist dudes in power. Mm-hmm. And they're like, oh, well, you know, like it looks like this dude is with these women and they're just enjoying what he's doing to them. And it's like, ooh. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was a totally different feeling film from the first iteration, like in the I would say the very best way. And I was shocked at how well it held up. Like, especially for being from the early 2010s, because I'm not usually pleased with how that goes. Yeah. (laughs) The trailer, the trailer, we watched it and Sarah was like, I don't know, this doesn't look good. And then we watched it. We were like, that was actually way better than the trailer made it look. I'm not a trailer person because trailers like don't always do films justice or they do them too much justice. So Mm -hmm. I don't always trust trailers. I just don't tend to watch them any longer. But I like the fact that they took it in a lot of different directions. It was a more cohesive story. And the fact that the female characters, like the mom, they did get to have a little bit more agency. Oh, yeah. Like, the mom was great, because also it's Tony oh, Collette. Yeah. Like, I was like, yeah. yeah, all right. Yeah. And even Amy was like a fully fleshed out character. She was great, yes. too. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Again, I'm still always so creeped out at the dynamic of a man who's at least in his late 30s trying to win over a high school student. Mm-hmm. It wasn't as plot pivotal this time, which good, please. Let's not do that. No. But it's just so gross in a way I just can't accurately express. Or maybe I can't, but maybe just facially. <laughs> <laughs> Dry heaving on camera. Yes. So I did like that there was a bit more lore built in to give it a better why to the story as well. And I mm-hmm. love the twist of having all the vampires like coming out of the walls and stuff. Oh, yeah, that was cool. Spoiler. Spoiler well, alert. You know, it's too soon. Too it's soon. only been 12 had, years. I was going to say, you've had <laughs> yeah. over a decade to watch it. If you haven't seen it now, you're probably not going to. <laughs> oh, no. I'm actually, you have enticed me. I'm thinking about when we finish up here, actually watching it. I think it's going to be right in my wheelhouse. I think it will be. That I think it will be, too. I mean, I really think the acting was really great, too. The ability to use some of the CGI gave them the ability to do things more thrilling, like adding that highway scene that you've already gotten a clip of. But there was Mm -hmm. more to that scene and it was a chunk. It was a good one. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 They also like don't do a lot of really over the top gore or like CGI special effects. They do a lot of stuff where it's like they they kind of like keep it just off camera, which I thought was really cool. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But Yeah. Okay. So. Since you and I have seen it, Jessica, I'm curious, who do you think was the better Jerry, Chris Sarandon or Colin Farrell? Oh, God, I was so torn Colin on this. Colin Farrell. I had to, I, 
<laughs> Tayo didn't even see that. I'm like, if Colin Farrell so next to me, I'm, it's done. I'm done. It's over. <laughs> I was pretty torn, but I think that the Colin Farrell, he's the more believable vampire as like the mm-hmm. next door neighbor kind of like swashbuckling, like kind of suave guy coming into the neighborhood, but still being kind of a creep. Like he did a oh, yeah. really good job of writing that line. So I thought as far as that went, I'm less likely to like just outwardly trust like the Chris Sarandon, like I'm trying to sweep you off your feet, man. Like those guys creep me out. I'm like, please stay like six steps away from me at all times. And please like get yeah. your trilby cleaned. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I feel like Sarandon was more kind of like the romance novel version of a vampire where he's yeah. all suave and like sultry and feral came across like like a predator, like something that was actually like really inhuman lurking under the surface. Yes. And then I actually really loved how Sarandon shows up in the remake for a great cameo, which I won't spoil here, but it's nope. very good. So good, though. Yeah. Yeah. And then. We should also mention Peter Vincent. How do you feel about him going from a late night TV host to a Chris Angel style magician? I thought that was such a good take. I mean, especially for the time frame it was in. I legit started cackling when they showed the first reel of it. I was like, this is incredible. Yes, 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 yes. (laughs) Yeah, I thought it was perfect. No notes. Loved it. And honestly, anything that makes fun of Chris Angel, it's always like, come on. He's made his own like stereotype. Like he's done this to himself. Like Chris Angel, whenever you mention him, it's like this perfect moment from like the late aughts preserved in amber. I I can't <laughs> I just do you want to do you want to see me stick a quarter through my hand? Not really, sir. Not especially. <laughs> that sounds horrific. <laughs> it's like, all right. <laughs> like well, it's hair. also the movie's set in uh, Vegas too. Which yeah. Makes, yeah. So it makes total sense. It makes total it, sense to do that. And I, I, without having seen it, it sounds like it's a clever update of the character. Yeah. I wanted to see Sai Svenguli in that role. Do you know who Svenguli is? Uh, the name's familiar. Same, yeah. Oh, no. He's just like a late night horror host from the 60s. Oh, okay. Peter Vincent, oh, but he dresses okay. up like a vampire and stuff. He's like Elvira, but the okay. a male version of Elvira. Now, if they would have gotten Elvira to do that, that would have been. Oof. God, I like I was a little bit sad that we didn't have an Elvira cameo. And by the way, Elvira, if you're listening, please come on the show. We keep hitting up your people. And Cassandra, (laughs) we keep asking like we keep (laughs) every every fall. They're like, all right, Elvira is like doing media appearances now, like put in your requests. And we've put them in (laughs) a couple of years in a row now. And we still haven't gotten anywhere. But one day, one day we will have Elvira on to talk about her comic books. Me choose me. Oh, man. All right. So let's talk about the comics now that we have waxed for a while about the movie. So these comics were published by Now Comics, which we have discussed at length in our previous episode about Bats, Cats, and Cadillacs. The Reader's Digest version of this is that it was founded by a guy named Tony Caputo, who basically started up the imprint to do adaptations of a lot of licensed content. We had everything from Speed Racer to the Terminator to the real Ghostbusters to Fright Night. And now comics announced it was publishing a Fright Night comic in February of 1988 in an issue of now comics news. It was revealed that the timing of the new series would coincide with the sequel Fright Night Part Two. 
It's actually very cute because now Comics News was designed to appear as a legit newspaper, and they have a note about how they couldn't pin down Tony Caputo about who would compose the series' creative team, but it also notes that there would first be a standalone issue described as a prestige bookshelf format that would adapt the first movie story. Caputo is confusingly quoted as saying it would be an adaptation, but then he says it will be a new story about the characters to those who never saw the original movie and a refresher to those who did. So I'm wondering if they were intending to add in some additional scenes for context or something. And then the article says the monthly series would ship a month later and it would kick things off with an adaptation of part two. But that's not what we got. There was never a special edition adaptation of the first movie. Instead, we just got the monthly series. And the story in the first two issues of the monthly series is the adaptation of the original Fright Night movie. Part two got a graphic novel adaptation, which is like weirdly hard to find and really expensive, but you can find a digital copy on archive.org if you want to read it. It's not bad. To be honest, like it's a better adaptation than that sequel deserves because the sequel is straight up not good. It was pretty critically reviled and was a box office bomb. I loved every second of that movie. How dare you? I honestly <laughs> did. I have not seen it in years and years and years, but when I was a kid, mm. I just remember the roller skater, the the <laughs> werewolf. It was just everything that my brain wanted back then. Wait so, a second. There's roller skating it's, in it? It's my, I'm going to go get the graphic novel. Mm. Yeah. The, so the graphic novel is actually not bad. There's minions. There's like ghouls. There's ghouls. Yeah. And one of them is shtick is like a roller skater and the way that they take her out is amazing also the graphic novels art i would argue is actually better than what we got in the main series and it's got a beautiful painted wraparound cover like it looks like a movie poster it's really cool but yeah so my guess is that now got a look at the second movie and they just kind of went no fuck no nobody's gonna want to read a series based on this let's stick to the original Because the sequel bombed pretty hard, and I wouldn't be surprised if now was contractually obligated to produce a tie-in comic, and so they kind of switched everything around, where they're like, we can do this as the one-shot prestige, and then we can do the good stuff, in quotes, as the ongoing series. And that brings us to the ongoing series. We're going to primarily focus on the first two issues because they were directly tied to the movie. These issues are cover dated as October and November of 1988. They were written by Robert Borsky and Joe Gentile edited by Tony Caputo, inked by Jeff D, penciled by Lennon Del Sol and Brandon Peterson, inked by Dennis Jensen and Jeff D, lettered by Kurt Hathaway, colored by Nanette Injeski, and cover art was by Lennon Del Sol and Jim Reddington. And the first two issues serve as like a truncated summary of the original movie. It's obvious that the creative team was focused on certain big moments from the film rather than others. The comic rushes through the early part of the story, until the first confrontation between Jerry and Charlie. I don't think we ever see Jerry's familiar Billy addressed by name in this. And then the other big moment that's fully fleshed out is the bit where Peter administers the fake tests and then realizes that Jerry is a vampire. And those two scenes take up nearly half of the comic. And then issue one ends with Jerry turning evil Ed into a vampire. And then the second issue picks up immediately after the first one. There is like no introduction or anything. It just starts right there with the chase scene where Jerry toys with Charlie and Amy driving them into the club before he hypnotizes Amy and abducts her. We also see the confrontation where Peter brands Ed with a cross driving Ed to flee. Charlie tries to recruit Peter. Jerry bites Amy to Turner and then Peter joins Charlie outside Jerry's house. And then the last half of the issue 
is the final battle, which admittedly is a pretty substantial part of the movie. The whole prolonged fight scene hits all the beats that we saw in the film. And then we get the ending scene with the glowing eyes that teased Evil Ed's return. And one more thing to note, the first issue has a six page short story called By the Numbers, which reads like one of those ironic twist future shock stories from 2008 comics. It's about a psychologist named Dr. Ort who arrives at a mental hospital to deal with his patient, Mr. Endor, who believes he's a werewolf. Dr. Ort spends most of the time talking to his patient, continuing to drop references to painting throughout the discussion. Then he hypnotizes Endor and tells him to reveal his, quote, unstained soul. And unfortunately, this transforms the patient into what I can only describe as a paint-by-numbers werewolf, who then murders the doctor. And then at his funeral, Ort's fellow psychologist is noted as taking her colleague's death especially hard, but then she tells her coworkers she's going to head home to relax and do some paint-by-numbers art. We don't get anything like this in the second issue, though. So, I mean, <laughs> it's an abbreviated wow. summary, but I feel like it's that's all there is. It doesn't really do anything new. Yeah, it's wow comics, not now comics <laughs> after I read this. Yeah. So we all read the first two issues. Like, how yeah. do you feel they were at retelling the movie story? I, I mean, it was honestly, like you said, it was a rushed beat for beat retelling of the movie. Mm -hmm. I'm like, man, if I could just be successful just doing storyboards for a movie, then it would be such a piece of cake. I do want to point out if you read there is a forward in issue one that you didn't mention by Tony Caputo. Mm. Tony, Tony, Tony. It's called Tiger by the Trail. And when you set aside the many, many typos in it, yep. which clearly he was acting as his own editor. Mm -hmm. Tony, you sound like kind of a jerk, to be honest with you. It, it feels like it a very a defensive. Vibe. It's very defensive sounding. It's very defensive. That's exactly yeah. the way to describe it. It was like he, everybody told him from the very beginning that his dreams were nonsense. And now that he's published one Fright Night comic, he's now going to tell them all exactly how it is. I'm successful, damn it. And then they filed for bankruptcy. <laughs> well, that was, that was a couple of years <laughs> later. We were at the point right then where now was actually doing very well. They were kind of bringing in a lot of stuff that was just, kind of hitting all the marks they also have a weird connection where they helped bring ecto cooler to the market if i remember right the you know the high c slimer drink oh my gosh oh, yeah i'm very familiar like we again go back and check out our bats cats and cadillacs episode but yeah mm -hmm. yeah yeah i described it as a solid five out of ten like the comic feels competent but shallow it glosses over a lot of stuff in order to get to the big moments and i think we lose whatever depth the movie had because of that but it's not bad. It's just, it's fine. It's mid. It was okay. Yeah. That yeah. was my, I literally have nothing to say other than it was okay. I mean, and that's how I describe the art too, where I'm like, yeah. it's yeah, fine. Same. You know, it's, it's totally passable. It feels very, what year was this published? 1988. 88. Yeah. It feels very 88 mm -hmm. art to me. And I like that style. I yeah. just, for me, it was so, it felt so after watching the movie and then immediately reading this, it felt just so rushed. Yeah. We have to fit an hour and a half into 40 pages or whatever it was. It just, I, I wish they would have had four issues or five issues to just be able to do it. Yeah. And I mean, the first two issues were clearly meant to be one book because it's, you know, based on how the story is split up and how they pick up right where it left off. But also the fact that the page numbers were never changed in the second issue. So it starts off with page 22. It's, 
Yeah. Uh, I feel I feel like even if they had added in like another 10 pages, you could have included all of like the moments that were cut out from the movie. And I have to wonder if it was kind of a last minute decision to do that. Yeah. It's just sad they didn't have the phone call. Oh, scene. yeah. Where he. Yeah. <laughs> like angle not only for angle phone calls. Oh, that would have been full great. page spread. Oh my gosh. <laughs> like you turn the page and it's just that shot. Yeah. I will say there was one standout moment with the art for me, and that was like the dance sequence in the club because it was a full page spread. It was really colorful where Amy is dancing with Jerry. And that was that was actually kind of a cool scene in the movie, too, I thought, because they really play up his lack of reflection, which was kind of neat. Yes. Yeah. I thought that was cool, too. For this question, that was actually my answer as well. Yeah. I thought that was a good one. Which, by the way, David, when you actually get a chance to go back and watch the 2011 version of the movie... The whole reflection thing. It's a really nice thing that they do with it. So, yeah. Okay. Okay. You, you sold me. You sold me. <laughs> Plus, it's two hours of like 2011 Colin Farrell. Which is like, yeah. I'm in. Oh, yeah. I'm in. No. I don't care. The standout moment in the art for me was Amy's face when she's full vampire. It doesn't quite capture the, the horrific makeup yeah. in the movie, but it's. I don't know. It's just cool. It's just cool to me. Yeah, I like that makeup that they did on her was just so good. It's also kind of funny because when she goes full vampire, she suddenly grows about a foot of hair and it's totally different from her original hair texture, so which I thought was pretty funny. <laughs> I, th- I thought it was cool in the movie where she had different hair and she was, you know, she's always like, Charlie, you're so stupid. Charlie, Charlie. Does tra-. And then she becomes this vampire. And she's walking down the stairs and she's like sultry and she's mature. And I just thought for the actor doing that, that was a cool transformation to see. So she really did sell that transformation where Mm -hmm. she was no longer. And in fact, as I was watching, I remembered her face as the full vampire in the long red hair. I've seen that image a lot over the years. And I forgot until I watched the movie recently, I forgot that it was Amy who mm-hmm. starts out as that girl next door. Oh, please, It's so Charlie. different. And I think she nailed it. It legit reminded me of the scene in the original Superman movie where Christopher Reeve is Clark Kent and he's kind of like, you know, stooped over and everything. And then he takes off his glasses for a second and stands up. And it's wild how different he looks just with that change of body language and a shift in his face. Mm-hmm. It was really cool. Yeah. There's such a conversation about why Superman... And Clark Kent, the glasses alone mm-hmm. disguises him. There's such an ongoing conversation about what it is. And I think you've probably hit it right on the head, which is it's a whole change in demeanor and persona and mm-hmm. everything that just transforms a person, transforms yeah. him into somebody else. But there is something very wild that happened. Like, I just got LASIK eye surgery, so I was a glasses wearer up until, like, mid-May. And now I just don't have to wear them anymore. But I mean, you will be shocked. I was at one of my regular trivia venues right after I done my LASIK. I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to do it. So I just got a, I got a fill in host and I was like, Hey, I actually, I feel good. I can like go and hang out. I will tell you so many of the people that I saw on a weekly basis did not recognize me. I was like nothing different other than the fact that I did not have glasses on, but that's been my experience. Like I, Mike knows, like I turn Mm -hmm. into like a totally different person if I do something new with my hair or if I wear a wig or if I change my glasses or put new ones on or take them off. (laughs) It's weird how that just, yeah, I'm a chameleon. 
<laughs> yeah. Did you also walk in and not acknowledge since you now are brand new Jessica? You just didn't acknowledge that you knew any of them. I don't have glasses now. Who are you? Who are you? Right. No, I said <laughs> hi to them and I was like talking to people. And then I had one guy come up later and be like, I didn't even realize it was you. I just like. <laughs> it's better than, than watching you get yeah. fully ignored by people, as oh I have God. seen. See, that makes me feel crazy. That makes me feel insane. No, David, you don't understand. Like, I'm invisible sometimes. I am like straight up, like not even like this girl doesn't have a reflection. Like this girl just is not here. And like I was standing in line, money in hand, green in my in my fist, looking to buy a slice of pizza at a late night pizza place that only takes cash. And I get up to the window and the guy goes to help the guy behind me. I never got pizza. He just ignored the guy me. The behind you was me. Oh yeah, you were the guy <laughs> behind me. But yeah, I just never got pizza. Yeah. I was mad. Then I then it was a yeah. protest. Then I just wasn't going to buy pizza from them. You're gonna, I was gonna ignore say, me fine. Yeah, yeah, no. Sarah and I were there with you. That was New Year's Eve, 2019. Yes, it was. That was, that was fun. <laughs> oh, Je- Jessica, I didn't realize you were on the podcast. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> All of a sudden, we just see Jessica drop kick the laptop through the window. <laughs> Where is the end key? Where is the key to end? <laughs> How do I get out of here? <laughs> and I'm fighting my way out of two feet of space. <laughs> I did that once, but in my defense, it was a friend of mine who's a cosplayer, and I had only met her cosplaying one character. And then she came up to a table where I was tabling in a con, and she's like, "Hey, David, how are you doing? How are things going?" And I clearly should have known who she was, and I was just like. I faked my way through half of that conversation. And then she finally said something. And I'm like, oh my God. But, and her, and her, I mean, I guess that's kudos to her. She was cosplaying and I did mm-hmm. not recognize her one bit. So. <laughs> and then she yeah. brought me pizza. No, I'm just kidding. Oh, I was <laughs> it's like, too oh soon, no. Right? <laughs> it's too soon. It's too soon. It's too soon to bring too up soon. pizza. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right, Jessica. I ate there the other day. I ate at that same restaurant. The pizza was Why? decidedly mid. It was yeah, exactly. Because I was trying to support a local business instead of going to Round Table, and I should have just gone to Round Table, like next to Goblin Bros. So wait, yeah. So you went to New York Pizza. You should have just gone to Old Chicago. Yeah, I just I was like, I don't know. I want to try something new. Like I haven't eaten here before, so yeah, it was fine. Okay. Lessons have been learned. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So for the rest of the ongoing series. Fright Night wound up having a pretty prolific life as a comic. Like I mentioned earlier, Fright Night 2 got the graphic novel adaptation, but it's never referenced again in the ongoing series, which lasted for a total of 22 issues from 1988 to 1990. So while the first two comics retold the movie, the rest of this... Oh, oh my gosh. Can you hear the can you hear whining? I can hear the dog. Yeah. All right. Hold on. Yeah, no worries. Finally, Jessica, we can talk frankly. <laughs> and I'm the one editing this, so he'll never hear any of it. <laughs> oh my gosh, it's, I forgot we are recording. <laughs> oh my God, it's almost like that's why you're here. <laughs> Wild. <laughs> yeah, a uh, total of 22 issues from 1988 to 1990. So while the first two issues retold the movie, the rest of the issues were original stories focused on the further adventures of Charlie, Peter, and their new allies. Amy just 
disappears after the second issue, which is lame but unsurprising. These comics follow kind of a monster of the week formula. They're not limited to the gothic horror genre. Issues two through eight contain bonus stories at the back of each issue that are totally unrelated to Fright Night. There are a couple of short horror comedy stories, but most of them were chapters from this new series that now is doing called Rust, which they were planning to bring back for a new series. Early on, we get stories about an invasion of the body snatcher style story with vampire bat shaped aliens. There's a Cthulhu inspired story about an eldritch squid that's menacing Monterey. There's one about a young janitor who tries to turn himself into a Spider-Man-esque hero using materials from a lab he works at, only to instead turn into like this grotesque man spider monster. Evil Ed does come back, but wasn't in the third issue like we were teased with. He officially returns in issue eight and becomes a recurring villain for the rest of the series. Ironically, he frames Peter and Charlie in a gay scandal as an attempt to get Peter fired when he comes back. Yes. <laughs> oh, perfect. the 90s. Oh, no the notes. 90s. Jerry is eventually resurrected too. We see him beginning to build a vampire army in Paris, but the comic was canceled before that story could get finished. And the comic had a number of um, issues early on. This is probably due to the constant turnover in the creative teams. Editor-in-chief Tony Caputo and editor Catherine Llewellyn were the only names that are consistently listed across the entire run of the comic. Llewellyn was credited with a number of jobs across the series. Not only did she edit, she also did coloring and script writing. I also think the turnover caused a lot of mistakes in the book's production. Like you noted in that first intro letter that he wrote, there's a lot of typos. Other cases in point, the third issue was written by James Van Hise, but it was credited to Joe Gentile. There's also issue 22, the series' final issue. It has this really beautiful cover painted by Hannibal King, who is the artist in Bats, Cats, and Cadillacs. And his signature is like super obvious. It's like a very large signature on this neon green moon. But the interior credits Eric Brandt as the cover artist. It's. <laughs> Can we just go back to the time when you could put out a series like this and get to 22 issues, please? Right. Yeah. Like, what a what, lo- how luxurious. <laughs> I mean, you know, and the other thing is, this was the era where, like, a comic was considered, I think Fabian Nicieza was saying that, like, the comics would get canceled if they were selling less than 30,000 copies, if I remember right. Yeah, something like that. And it was mm-hmm. like, people would kill to have that now. Like, right. Yeah. 30,000 is like a blockbuster. I know. It's wild. Those are like Boer numbers. <laughs> I hope I'm so, totally man. Joking. I'm totally joking. Everybody on the podcast is like, I liked it up until that moment. Ah. Right. No, I just, just I kidding. love the unwavering confidence. It's great. It's great. Love it's it. It's just undeserved. It's just outsized confidence. If I, if I don't have that, then, oh, sigh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so Fright Night's ongoing series got canceled in 1990 when now declared bankruptcy, and they went through a major reorg. This affected a couple of the books that we've discussed on previous episodes, like Bats, Cats, and Cadillacs and Mirror Walker. And that said, now published four Fright Night 3D issues. Three of them were just reprints of stories from the main series. One of them is a previously unprinted special. I haven't read that one, but my guess is that it was mostly produced before Now's Bankruptcy kneecapped the series and they decided to print it afterwards as a quick way to make money. And that said, there is another comic series. In 2018, Tom Holland crowdfunded a new comic called Fright Night, The Peter Vincent Chronicles. There are three issues so far. They actually gave out a preview this year for Free Comic Book Day. It's basically acting as a spinoff where Peter Vincent has written a book detailing the movie's adventures. And he's found himself in the sights of a vampire queen who's 
giving off some serious Vampirilla vibes when she shows up. It was cute. I'm not sure if I'm going to seek it out otherwise, but, you know, it exists. And likewise, Tom Holland published what sounds like a prequel novel last year and is working on another movie called Fright Night Resurrection. But the last update that I could find on that was from 2020, and it's apparently going to ignore Fright Night 2. So that is I'm going to defend that movie. (laughs) Put me in the ground wrapped in a VHS of that movie in my cold, dead hands. I love it. I loved it. You heard it here first, folks. Good. I'll probably watch it again. Well, now we know what to buy you for Christmas. It's obvious that we're going to buy you copies of that on VHS. 100%. I, I have a whole VHS collection because I'm such an 80s nerd. Good. Nice. Yeah, I'll watch it again. I'll be like, I apologize to everyone who's listened to this episode because it is just absolutely terrible. But until then. <laughs> but until then. <laughs> So yeah, are there any final thoughts regarding Fright Night or its comics before we move on? I Nothing from me. It was a fun little dive. Yeah. I really enjoyed it. I was surprised at how long lived the franchise is and how good the remake is. Like, other than that, no notes. Yeah. And I continue to love it. I will love it until my final uh, moments. <laughs> <laughs> totally reasonable. I can't do anything like just a little bit. It's either I will defend it. You're just, you're just turned up to 11 at all times. Oh, that's how I feel too. That's how I am. Mike knows me. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. So the reason that we decided to cover Fright Night is because as we have noted, it is a quintessential slice of 80s horror, which is something that is right in David's wheelhouse. One of your online bios reads that you grew up reading Stephen King, watching The Goonies and Nightmare on Elm Street, eating Lucky Charms in front of He-Man, trading Garbage Pail Kids, playing Nintendo, and going outside. You like the going outside at the end? I, I'm like, like I, I guess. Like, I'm not really poking. someone who enjoys going outside. Mm. But yeah, mm. like, that's because I was also an 80s kid. And my parents were always like, go outside. And I'm like, mm, I don't want to. Well, now I don't go outside. Are you kidding? But back then... <laughs> We all went out full I guess. We had guess. to. We were told we had to. Don't come yeah. back until the street lights come on. Exactly. Drink from the hose if you're thirsty. We don't care. And then your parents and yep. they stand in the doorway and they would just yell your name. Yep. Oh my gosh. Yep. Mm-hmm. What a time to be alive. What a time. <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah. Well, one of your recent comics is Specs, which we have talked about before as one of the cool things that that we were reading. I loved this comic. It is one of my favorite things that I've read in the past year. It's a horror story that is set in the 1980s. And we are recording this about a month before the trade paperback is coming out. It should have dropped, I think, about a week before this episode actually hits. Could you tell our readers a little bit about it? And then we have a couple of questions for you. Sure. So Spex is uh, set in 1987 in a small town in Ohio, and it's about these two best friends who kind of outcast. Kenny is in the closet, sort of growing into his own sexuality, but, you know, very confused. And it's the 80s, so nobody really knows what's going on. His best friend, Ted, is a baseball player, and he's also the only black kid in this small town. So he feels like he's a little bit of an outsider. So they end up, they're best friends. And... One day, they're reading a 
Silver Age comic book that has an ad in the back for magic specs that Grant wishes. And then sort of without them doing anything, a pair of these magic specs sort of mysteriously show up on their doorstep. And they put them on and they grant wishes. And two high school boys do what two high school boys would do with a pair of magic glasses that grant wishes. They make some wishes and they get a little bigger and a little bit more wild. And then they make one wish that really backfires on them and it turns mm-hmm. the entire town against them and it becomes a story about their bond and their fight against these classes that seem to be bent on really destroying them as as people. And so yeah. it was very much inspired by my love of Stephen King. One of the big inspirations was Stand By Me, Stephen King's story, The Body. And it's got very much like Stranger Things vibes to it and uh, mm-hmm. creep show vibes to it, Twilight Zone type thing. And so I brought that all together to make a coming of age story about magic glasses and wishes we make and wishes we don't make. Yeah. No, it felt so special when I was reading it. And I was sitting there thinking about how like it would have been nice to read a story with characters like these when I was a kid, because, you know, someone who grew up by, but couldn't really put it into words at the time because that wasn't really something that was acknowledged. Just seeing other queer people represented, especially as teenagers, would have meant so much. And so I'm so happy to see that now. Well, that makes me feel so good because, you know, Kenny is sort of struggling with who he is and he doesn't mm-hmm. even really know who he is. He just knows how he feels. And and to be able to explore that through, no pun intended, but through the lens of, of this horror story. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what the glasses are. They really just magnify whatever's going on in your life and really twist it and really test you and push you to see you might come out on the other side, you might not. So it was important to me to tell a story like this. I call it character first horror. And another story that I wrote was Rain. And that to me, they're like spiritual siblings, but that is Rain is also a character first horror story. Mm-hmm. So you start with character. I mean, maybe that's what was missing in Friday night. If we really knew Charlie and really knew what he was struggling with and then put him in this horror scenario, we would have connected maybe more with the story and the characters. So it's sort of my approach to these things. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Rain was a big, for me, a, a oh man, a big tearjerker for sure. It was an emotional roller coaster as well as a horror. So you did a, such a nice job on that. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So was any part of Kenny's story like autobiographical for you? I'm, I think I know the answer, but I figured I'd ask. You'd be surprised. I've gotten this question a lot since Specs came out. And to be honest with you, it's not autobiographical. Okay. The story itself is not autobiographical. But the reason, it's such an interesting, and I don't want to sound like a chick when I say this. I'm always interested when I get that question. Because it means that I have taken my own experience, not necessarily in this circumstance or having an un- unreturned, you know, love of a best friend when I was growing up or anything like that. But I've been able to take my own feelings as a part of the LGBTQ plus community and pour it into a character that feels so authentic that folks who read it think this must have happened to him. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I, and I think it just speaks to why we as part of the queer community, should be writing queer stories because they feel so authentic. Even if this never happened to you, the feelings that Kenny has are so authentic and they come from such a, such a true place. That that's why I think I get that question because it feels so true to life, I guess. Yeah. Now, I don't want to sound like I'm, I'm, you know, like I'm a jerk about it, but that's really what I think. I just have been able to pour 
how I feel into this character. And that's why it feels very real. Yeah. Well, it definitely felt real. So. So what would high school you have wished for if he'd wound up with those sunglasses? Such a good question. As I think about it, maybe I would wish to know some part of the future, like for myself. When you're a kid, you're just wondering and you're like struggling with your identity and you want to come out and you want to do all these things and you know how you feel, but it's weird and it's different. If you could just see yourself a little bit in the future and see that, you know, things do change. I think that I might've wished for that. Look, of course, as an adult human looking back now, like I probably back then I would have wished for like uh, having a complete set of garbage bag kids or something. Silly. <laughs> I mean, relatable, <laughs> extremely relatable. It's just so ridiculous. So if you could write a story set within any 80s universe, what franchise would you choose? Beetlejuice. Nice. 100%. That's the first movie that I remember seeing in the movie theater. And my dad took us when I think we were eight or nine years old. And he didn't tell us where we were going. And it was a school night. And I just remember that opening crawl with the Danny Elfman music. And that's, that's it for me. It's a Beetlejuice story where Beetlejuice and Lydia have to team up because Lydia's an adult now and they have to stop the end of the world. And it's called Beetlejuice colon Apocalypso. Yeah. You haven't thought about yes. this at all or anything. Yeah. Not even a little bit. Oh my God. You hear that Warner Brothers? I'm here for you. Sign me up. Oh, I want to read that. I mean, or you know, with it. Beetlejuice 2 coming out supposedly sometime I don't know, whenever the strike ends, maybe you'll get your shot sooner than you think. I mean, that just is the one. It's like, you know, when I think when publishers and editors are looking around at folks to write these kind of licensed things, I think passion is a huge part of it. And I only take projects that I'm passionate about. And I I will hunger games everyone to get that. <laughs> 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 Good. Because it's where it's gonna go it's gonna be in the it's gonna be in the universe and someone's gonna have it they'd be like oh i remember when Dora and that one podcast city would go hunger games on everybody and suddenly <laughs> here we are and then we're gonna have to have a cage fight and you know <laughs> welcome to thunderdome welcome to thunderdome it'll be yeah. you and elon musk and mark zuckerberg all in the same cage it'll be great oh my god shoot that rocket right <laughs> please sun. take out a couple of billionaires for us please take them out yes <laughs> Yes. Uh, but to be clear, I will not kill anybody to get that project. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of things short of murder that you can do. I, I like that you're not ruling myself. out bodily harm, but just, you know, you're stopping short at murder. Okay. Noted. <laughs> we were doing I mean, so well. We were doing so well on this episode. And then he threatened the entire comics community. And now it's fine. <laughs> uh, what could go wrong? What could go wrong? <laughs> oh, man. Well, where can people buy the book? Wherever comics and graphic numbers are sold. So if you want to support shooting those billionaires into the sun, you can buy it on Amazon. You can also go to your local comic shop, and I'm sure they will have it stocked there, especially when we get around this spooky season and Halloween time. Yeah. Well, I'm really excited about this coming out. I'm definitely going to snap it up. I also have, I think, almost all the variant covers for the individual issues 
this was such a great series and i tell everybody about it all the time so like i'm really glad that you came on to talk with us about it so thank you so much i loved this 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 was such a personal story and i love this story so much so thank you for picking it up and thank you for spreading the word because the way this book will be successful i mean it's at boom studios and they've got huge books so mm-hmm. really the way for it to be successful is for anybody who reads it just to you know tell your friends tell your family you know get it as a gift whatever just to pick yeah. it up because chris sheehan and i chris is the artist on it we just poured our hearts and souls into it yeah it is now time to move on to brain wrinkles which is the part of the show where we talk about one thing that has been stuck in our head that is comics or comics adjacent. Well, I've been thinking because we're recording this in July, which is Disability Pride Month. And I have been thinking about the fact that I would love to see more visual representation of people with disabilities in, you know, just in everything really. And, you know, the things that we read, the things that we see. Recently, there was a dancer in a wheelchair who was cast for Rogers the Musical at Disneyland. Oh, wow. But there was kind of some drama about whether or not, like, she was kind of promised a role. And then they were like, well, it's not really a kind of a permanent role. And, and so there was just kind of some gross back and forth. Yeah, yeah. It seemed a little gross. And I don't, I'm not all up on everything. So I'm not going to get deep into that because I really don't know all the true facts. But I, I would love to see more people being represented. And there are some creators who are working on things like this. Like I know Aubrey Smalls, who is a little person. He's doing some stuff with that community. And he's hmm. currently trying to fund a film and I can't remember what the name of the film is but look up Aubrey Smalls really awesome guy and trying to do a lot of work for the community so nice yeah yeah but I've just I've just been kind of thinking about that because I mean we see enough of like people that represent us yeah. you know as able-bodied individuals without those overarching disabilities and I feel like we've gotten a lot better about talking about like some of the mental health stuff but we still kind of try to sweep, you know, things that we can see physically under the rug. And it's really a shame that we're doing that to a part of our community that really does deserve to be represented. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I will go next because I'm also going to kick Marvel and Disney. So <laughs> I have been thinking about how they buy up properties and then just let them rot, let yep. them sit there. So Blue Moon Comics, our our local shop now, which is down in San Rafael, they had their 25th anniversary last weekend, and I was down there. I picked up some trades from CrossGen, which was a publisher that went bankrupt in 2004, and it was bought by Disney before Disney had acquired Marvel. Disney worked with another publisher to put out a couple of the trades, and then they only published a few books, and then Disney just didn't show any interest in doing more, and that's genuinely a bummer because there's a lot of great comics from that line it's everything from like horror to fantasy to sci-fi to action and it's just you know nothing is being done with it and it's part of a larger pattern with them like we recently talked about how there's a demand for stuff from malibu comics but marvel owns that and then they won't republish it for some unexplained reason right i don't know it just it just bumps me out like because there's a lot of media that is getting snapped up by mega corporations and then it is just getting lost to time. Like I was reading an article today about how 90% of classic in quotes video games, which is basically from before 2010 are getting very hard to find 
and we're like objectively in danger of just losing access to them in the near future. What a bummer. Yeah. So David, what about you? What has been sitting in your head? Well, what's been sitting in my head, this will air weeks after the comics Christmas, if you will, the big mm-hmm. event of San Diego Comic-Con, but that's been on my mind for the last, you know, prepping for the show for the last several weeks. And when this airs, the strikes with the WGA and SAG after are still going on. Mm-hmm. What's been really interesting is to see how conventions are recalibrating. Comics conventions in particular are recalibrating when celebrities may or may not be able to be there to promote different projects that are coming out because that's part of the guidelines for the SAG strike. Oh, interesting. And there's a recalibration potentially on the horizon for conventions, at least temporarily, to refocus on comics okay, and their comics market. And I know there's a debate that's going on on social media publicly about whether or not that's a good thing because, you know, some of these conventions do survive on celebrity appearances. And, you know, it's not just a comics convention. It's a fan expo and a pop mm-hmm. culture and all those things. And it's really interesting to be a part of that as it sort of unfolds. And I personally I, I am very excited about the prospect. I work in TV, I work in film, I work in comics, and I'm excited about the prospect of the spotlight sort of turning slightly toward comics as a medium, which creates all this wonderful content that then mm-hmm. is the springboard for the billion dollar movies that we're seeing over and over again. So San Diego Comic-Con has been occupying my brains, every inch of my brain space. <laughs> and that's one aspect of it that was not, we couldn't really foresee. Yeah. For our listeners, I'm a jerk. And when I suggested this date to record, I didn't realize that it was the Friday before Comic-Con. So neither of us thought about how busy David was going to be. So he was <laughs> very gracious and took a lot of time to talk with us today. Yes. Thank you. So. So yeah. And that, that entire eloquent response to your question was just me trolling you, Mike. So here we are. <laughs> that sounds about right. It's fair. <laughs> Yeah, thank you. I'm happy to take the time out because honestly, I'm just sitting around chatting with buddies. Oh, yes. Yay, friend. Yeah, we're going to make it Facebook official. It'll be fine. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. They they both sent me friend requests. Here's the best day. Here's the best day. Uh, No, this was great. Like, we have been excited about this ever since we confirmed you on the show. And this was just such a lovely opportunity to talk about some of our favorite books so thank you very much for coming on you both have been absolutely lovely to put up with my hijinks so thank you (laughs) hijinks are us like you're in the right place (laughs) we'll make you an honorary trash goblin it's all good yeah (laughs) we'll send you stickers it'll be fine it's just an honor to be nominated honestly (laughs) (laughs) all right well That is about it for this week's episode. We will be back next week with another Dollar Bin Discovery. And then after that, we will be covering something in depth. I don't know what at this point in time. Who knows? We're recording everything out of order in advance. (laughs) But until then, stay safe out there and we will see you in the stacks. Thanks for listening to Tencent Takes. Accessibility is important to us. So text transcriptions of each of our published episodes can be found on our website. 
This episode was hosted by Jessica Frazier and Mike Thompson, written by Mike Thompson and edited by Jessica Frazier. Our intro theme was written and performed by Jared Emerson Johnson of Bay Area Sound. Our credits and transition music is Pursuit of Life by Evan McDonald and was purchased with a standard license from Premium Beat. Our banner graphics were designed by Sarah Frank, who you can find at lookmomdraws.com. If you'd like to get in touch with us, ask us questions, or tell us about how we got something wrong, please head over to tencenttakes.com or shoot an email to tencenttakes at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter, for now. The official podcast account is tencenttakes. Jessica is Jessica Witha, and Jessica spelled with a K, and Mike is Van Sau, V-A-N-S-A-U. We're also just about everywhere else on social media. The complete list will be in the show notes. And you can find me all over social media, whether it's Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or the newfangled I Don't Understand Threads and Blue Sky. <laughs> I'm an old guy, did I mention it? <laughs> it's at David Bohr some places, like Twitter and, I believe, Blue Sky. And it's at David M. Bohr on Instagram and Threads. And you can find my face on the book. <laughs> if you'd like to support us, be sure to download, rate, and review wherever you listen. Stay safe out there. And support your local comic shop. <laughs> oh, if this anybody is failing. Yeah. It's Mike. No, I'm just kidding. I... <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Oh, our takes. <laughs>